Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Page 919. So we left off that not only does God remain unaffected by creation, just like he was alone before he created the world, so too he remains alone after he created the world. His essence remains unchanged because everything is nullified before his essence and God remains unaffected by creation. Creation is totally dependent on God and it doesn't add anything to God. It has no significance to God. So God's essence remains alone and unaffected. And then he said, not only does God's essence remain unaffected, but even his knowledge, even God's knowledge also remains unaffected. That although God knows of his creatures, he knows, is aware of everything that is happening in this world. Just like the human body, your soul is aware of everything that happens in your body, from your toenail to your brain, every part of you. Um, your soul is totally aware, constantly aware and totally aware of every aspect of your body. So too, God is totally aware and is knowledgeable and is aware of everything that is happening in this world. Every thought that you think, every word that you speak, every act that you do, your attitudes, down to the smallest creature of this world, down to the amoeba. God knows and is aware of everything that happens. But that knowledge does not affect God. Even that knowledge does not affect God, does not change God. It's not, that, it's not like human knowledge. Human knowledge, when you know something, you learn something, every day you learn something new, and the knowledge affects you, it changes you. You're a changed man, you're a changed person. Today you know something you didn't know yesterday. You're more aware. Every day you learn, and you grow, and you change. That is the definition of knowledge, of learning. Learning, acquiring knowledge, acquiring something new, something <coughs> something exciting, something you didn't know yet yesterday. But God is knowledge. God doesn't know anything new. And Maimonides explains because God knows his creation because he knows himself, just like God knows himself. Because all of creation is from, him, from God. There's nothing independent of God. Everything is entirely, totally dependent on God. So God knows himself, and by knowing himself, he knows everything that he creates. Just like God's knowledge of himself is a total knowledge, it's, it's not an external knowledge, so too the knowledge that God knows of all of his creation is also just an extension of knowing himself. So it's not like there is, he's acquired new wisdom, new knowledge. He's aware of something new, something outside of him. He's aware of himself. Everything is, comes from himself. So there's nothing outside of God. So God knows himself. And just like God hasn't changed, and so too the knowledge. His knowledge of everything that exists, which derives from himself, also does not change God, does not affect God. God remains unchanged, and even his knowledge remains unchanged with creation. It's not that he's aware of something new, and this is what we left off last week, and this is where he quotes Maimonides, on page 919, as Maimonides of Blessed Memory stated, 
as Maimonides of blessed memory stated, that he is the knower, he is the known, and he is the knowledge itself. All are one. This is radically different from mortal knowledge, which comprises three distinct elements, the person's soul, the knower, the subject that is known, and the power of knowledge, the faculty of dot, which enables the knower to know the known. In the divine realm, however, these three elements are all one. All are God. This, Maimonides goes on to say, is beyond the capacity of the mouth to express, beyond the capacity of the ear to hear, and beyond the capacity of the heart or mind of man to apprehend clearly. For the Holy One, blessed be He, His essence and being and His knowledge are all absolutely one from every side and, and angle and in every form of unity. His knowledge is not superadded to his essence and being as it is in a mortal soul, whose knowledge is added to its essence and is compounded with it. For when a man studies a subject and knows it, his rational soul was already within him before he studied and, and knew it and afterwards this knowledge was added to his soul. Man's knowledge is thus a supplement to his intrinsic being. Through it, be, through it he becomes aware of something he did not know before. And so, day after day, days speak, instruct a person, and a multitude of years teach wisdom. This is not a simple, perfect unity, but a composite. So, in other words, it's external. It's something, it's something that's acquired, and it's something that's really separable. I can take it apart, and then I put it together. You take three components, and you put it together, and that's what knowledge is. You take the soul, the knowledge, and the knowing, and through the, through the knowledge, the ability to know, the soul acquires, learns, and is, becomes aware of the object that's known. But these are three separate components. You can have one without the other. By God, however, the knowledge is inseparable. The knowing is inseparable. It's not separate from God. Nothing that exists is separate from God because it all comes from God. It's totally dependent on God. Everything that it has is only from God. There's nothing else. All it is is God's ability to create. The miracle of creation. It has nothing else. Its entire substance is, is God. It's God imagines, God speaks, and things come into being. God wills and things come into being. What is it? It's God's will. That's all it is. There's nothing else. So it's inseparable from God. And God's knowledge is, in, is inseparable from Him. So that's like an intrinsic unity. It's a different type of unity. It's like a unity. It's like we discussed last week. There's the unity. There's the knowledge that He's describing here, which is the conscious knowledge, which is the knowledge that most of us really could relate to and experience, because that's our conscious knowledge, which is an external knowledge components that you can take apart that are mechanically brought together. It's like the, the knowledge forces and brings, you, brings the two together, brings the soul and the, know, and the knowing together through the ability to know. But then you have an intrinsic knowledge, a subconscious level of knowledge, which is inseparable from you, which is not that you know something new. It's almost like you know something that you've always known. Like once you realize, you recognize it. It's like recognition. You recognize... It's like you remember something you've always known. And suddenly you become, you become re-aware of it, but really you've always known it. It has never left you. It's a different type of knowledge, because it's a knowledge that's inseparable from you. You can't separate the knowing and the knower and, and, and what you know and the soul that knows. 
it's intrinsically connected, it's inherent, it's all connected. So there's an inner knowledge, a knowledge where, where something stirs inside your soul. There's a recognition, there's a level of experience which is, which is very deep and very profound, which really almost emerges from the subconscious, which is a different level, different type of knowledge. We experience it very rarely. Very few people experience it deliberately, deliberately and consciously, although it's possible. But that's why Maimonides says that he says it's very difficult for us to understand. He doesn't say it's impossible for us to understand. He says it's very difficult for us to even conceive this level of knowledge, a knowledge that's inseparable from you, a knowledge which almost comes from within you. You know something outside of you, but you know it from within yourself. You know it from your kishkes. You know, it's almost like you know something with, with every fiber of your being and every bone in your body. Like you know yourself. It's not I know something external. I know it. It's a knowledge that's almost etched within me. It's like when you carve, it's like a difference in you write letters or you carve letters. The letters are carved, they're etched within the stone. It's a knowledge, but it's not an external knowledge. It's etched from within me. It's a knowledge that comes from within me. It, it, it's almost my, my whole self stirs. My whole self knows. It's a different type of knowledge. It's not external knowledge. It's external to me. There's me, there's the knowledge, and there's the known. It's, which are brought together mechanically, almost like a machine that you can break down into different components. That's conscious knowledge. That's the knowledge that we all experience, that we all relate to, and that's our ordinary knowledge. But there is a deeper knowledge, a level of knowledge, a subconscious level of knowledge that most of us never even access. That, but it's there, and occasionally we do experience it, which is like pure experience and recognition, a knowledge that comes from like your whole being knows. You can't separate you, and it comes from within you. So therefore, it's not anything separate from you. It's not anything additional to you. And therefore, you recognize it. And, and, and you feel like, I've always known this. I never, just for some reason, I just didn't pay attention, but it was always there. It's like when a Jew recognizes his own Jewishness. When it emerges, that moment, when the Pintleyid emerges, you, what do you know? You know your essence, you know yourself which you've always known all along, even when you weren't aware of it. Even a Jew who sinned to violate all 613 mitzvot, deep down while he was sinning, there was a level of awareness which he's totally unaware of. An awareness that comes from Yekishkas, from every, your whole essence. That a Jew is connected with his whole essence even while he sinned. Because the external level, the conscious level, is so superficial, it's just on the surface. But underneath it, there, there's a deeper level of knowledge that operates independently. And that's more, more genuine and more truthful, more intimate and deeper. And that has a reality of its own. And that's like a person knows yourself. Your level of self-awareness. Subconsciously, you're always self-aware. Matter of fact, 99% of our body happens unselfconsciously. We have no idea what's going on. And our body regulates itself, takes care of itself. It does miracles, wonders, and it all happens... In one split second, simultaneously, your body is totally aware of every aspect of your body, but it's a deeper level of awareness that you're, you're not in touch with. But it's there. And that's a, an awareness that comes from your very essence. You know yourself because you are yourself. It's not an external knowledge. Well, with Hashem, all of Hashem's knowledge, everything that Hashem knows, everything that Hashem is aware of, everything that's happening in this world, He's aware of what we're doing right now, this moment, what we're thinking, He's aware of us, He feels us, He senses us, He senses what we're thinking, He senses what's troubling us, He senses when we sin, He senses everything that's going on within us, He senses every, everything, our struggles, our stumbling blocks, our, our failures, our strengths, 
our triumphs, our defeats, our victories. Hashem feels everything and knows everything. As we're down to the amoeba, down to a mosquito, down to every little tiny movement that happens in this world from the angels. And Hashem is aware of everything simultaneously. He's aware of everything that's going on. It doesn't add anything to him. Hashem is aware. It's inseparable from him. This knowledge is inseparable from, inseparable from him. Because everything that exists is from, is, comes from Hashem. It's inseparable from Hashem. Its whole essence, its whole substance is nothing other than Hashem. Hashem's miraculous ability to create. That's all it is. And therefore he knows himself and he knows himself totally. And it's a knowledge that comes from within himself. And therefore he knows everything. So it's not that he learned something new or an external knowledge that's separate from Hashem. You can separate Hashem and there is his knowledge. He acquires something new. A new awareness. He learned something new. No, it's inseparable. Hashem's knowledge is inseparable from him. And what he knows with that knowledge, which is us, is also inseparable from him. His knowledge of us is inseparable from him. So his knowledge is divine. Not the knowing is not divine. He knows us. We're not divine. And that's idolatry. Just because when we say Hashem and His knowledge and the knowing is one, it doesn't mean we who are the knowing, that we are Hashem. God forbid. That's, that's idolatry. That's Trinity. That's idolatry. What we're saying is that Hashem and His ability to know and the, the, the knowledge, the fact that He knows us and He's aware of us, that awareness is one with Hashem. His divine providence, his awareness of us is one with Hashem. That's divine, that's God. Not the known object that we are divine, that we're inseparable from Hashem and we are divine. That's idolatry, we're not, we created beings. So let's, uh, let's just continue reading. The Alta Rebbe means the following. Although man's knowledge too is united with him, literally with his soul, for it is the person himself who knows nevertheless, this is not a perfect unity, for simple implies that any alternative would be inconceivable. Since a man's knowledge is acquired, not having been part of his essential being, its acquisition yields an imperfect and composite form of unity, a unity comprised of two separate entities that have coalesced. Right, when, when it's carved into the stone, you can't separate the letters from the stone. If you get rid of the letters, it means you got rid of the stone. The fact that you can, you can theoretically imagine picture the person without the knowledge, that many people who don't have knowledge, who don't acquire knowledge, you can have a person go through life without the knowledge, so it means that the knowledge is not part of your essence, because if it was part of your essence, you can't separate the two. You can't separate your essence from the knowledge. If the knowledge came from within you, from within your guts, and you, so then, it's, then it would be something that you would recognize, something that you always knew, which is, again, what's so unique about Judaism, because whenever a Jew studies Judaism, invariably, you always get the same reaction. It resonates. It rings a bell. I know this. Subconsciously, I know this. I heard this once before. It's there. It's, it's, oh, it was always there. It's recognition. There's always a sense of recognition. I know this. I heard this. It, 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 it resonates so... It's not just I'm hearing an interesting thought. It's like every fiber of my being, every, every bone of my body agrees with it. I know this. This is truth. Because it's etched into your being and that's inseparable from you. You can't, if you know yourself, you are yourself, you also know, you have that knowledge. But the fact that knowledge, conscious knowledge is acquired, you can learn languages, you can learn information, you can learn science, you can learn wisdom, but that's an acquired knowledge. You, can, you could choose not to learn. That means that that knowledge is external to you. It doesn't come from your essence, otherwise it would be inseparable. So it's like a mechanical thing. It's like mechanically, I take two objects and I force them together. 
I, I wrench them together, I screw them together, I tie them together. Yes, yeah, so it's a bond. When a person knows something, even conscious knowledge, once you know it, it becomes part of you, and you know it, and you're bound together. But it's still an external type of knowledge. And that's why most knowledge doesn't necessarily affect you very profoundly. If we, if we lived up to the, our knowledge, we would all be saints. We lived 50% of what we knew. But knowledge doesn't necessarily affect us. Knowledge is very external to us. I know it, and it's interesting, and may even click, but it doesn't necessarily affect me and change me because it doesn't become really part of my essence because the knowledge is not really it's something that's acquired, something that's external. Versus Yiddishkeit. Yiddishkeit is not called knowledge. Torah is called Torah. As the Talmud says, if someone will tell you there's wisdom amongst non-Jews, believe it. You bet there is wisdom amongst non-Jews. But if someone will tell you there's Torah amongst non-Jews, don't believe it. What's the difference in wisdom and Torah? Torah comes from the word a lesson. Everything in Torah ends up being a lesson in life. At the end of the whole discussion, whole theoretical discussion, every concept, every idea, there's always a bottom line. So, what are you going to do different? How are you going to change? How are you going to wake up different in the morning as a result of this knowledge? Because the knowledge is not external. Torah is not external. It's not something that you can separate the person from. I've acquired wealth and I've acquired a wealth of information. But it doesn't change me. It doesn't affect me. The Torah's knowledge is truth. Torah is truth. Torah is something that comes from your very essence. It has to change your whole being. It has to affect you. It has to transform you. It's not just an interesting piece of information that's detached from me. You cannot be an observing Jew. <laughs> to be a Jew, you can't be observing or observant. You have to, it has to engage you, totally. That's the nature of Torah. It's the nature of truth. Because it's not an external knowledge. Torah is not an external knowledge. Torah is a knowledge that comes from your kishkin, comes from within. It's inseparable from you, and therefore it has to, it has to shake you to your core. It has to affect you, and inspire you, and move you, and change you. That's the sign of truth. That's the sign. That's the divine stamp. That's the sign of Torah. That's a different type of knowledge. It's a different level of awareness. It's a divine. That's why Torah is divine wisdom. It's divine knowledge. It's different, different than man-made knowledge or science which is created knowledge. Science, which is created knowledge, it's brilliant, it's wise, but it's external. And therefore, you and the knowledge are strangers. Yes, I know all this information, but it doesn't necessarily make you a refined person. You could be very knowledgeable, and you could be a low life. Look at the German people. Culture. The house of the university. The seat of the rational mind. World War II taught us, the Holocaust taught us, we lost all faith in man. Knowledge doesn't refine you, knowledge doesn't change you, knowledge doesn't elevate you. You and the knowledge have no connection. You can learn morality, you can learn, you can learn even, even theology. And yet it doesn't really change you, because it's external. Torah knowledge, however, is divine knowledge. Divine knowledge is, is a knowledge that comes from within, it's inseparable, it's inherent. It's something that, that comes from your very core and essence, and therefore it touches you to your very core and essence. It's inseparable. You can't separate the person from the knowledge, from his behavior, from his character. It has to totally permeate the whole person. That's divine knowledge. It's a different type of knowledge. That's what we mean when we talk about divine knowledge. 
It's almost impossible to. Yeah. It's always there, probably, but to really benefit or really use it, you, you still need something outside of you too. An inspiration. Yes, something to inspire you to access it. It seems like it. It seems it's not a natural process to access it. So that's what the tanya is used for. That's what the the, the Torah is. It's bringing down to a conscious level, but you, what you're being conscious of is really something that's really beyond your conscious. You should constantly be conscious of divine, of the deepest truth, of the deepest reality, of your very core and very essence. But that should become part of your, you should be able to deliberately and consciously recreate and, and, and allow that core and essence to constantly emerge and surface through Torah and Mitzvah. Every time you make a blessing in a cup of water, Every time you touch a mezuzah, every time you give a penny to tzedakah, as you go about your daily life and you're thinking, you go around your life thinking, living with a sense of mission, a sense of purpose, that I'm a divine ambassador and I'm representing Hashem. Through all of that, through every moment of your life, everything that a Jew does, it permeates every aspect of your life, you're bringing down on a conscious level, you know, the deepest divine reality, the subconscious reality. And that's, that's really the, the charge of a Jew. The mission of a Jew is not to escape to some subconscious world which, to heaven, it's a mountaintop where there are no words and no emotions and no human interactions, tune in, tune out, that's not the Jewish charge. The Jewish charge is on the contrary, to engage in the world and in the conscious level, in your daily life, to bring godliness, that you, to use your consciousness to constantly... Uh, remind yourself and to constantly connect with, the, with, that, with that subconscious knowledge, with that deeper knowledge, with that total knowledge, that divine knowledge. And that's what Torah is. Torah is words. Torah is, is understanding. But the essence of Torah is it's a guidance. It's touching the deepest knowledge, divine knowledge, which totally transforms you and changes you, unlike science or physics or math. Or, it's a whole different story. That's wisdom, but that's not Torah. That's not divine. This is divine. When you study Torah, it's divine. It's a deeper type of knowledge. It's a different type of knowledge. It's a knowledge that, that's, that has the divine stamp of truth in it. It's, it's total. It's all-encompassing. It's a knowledge that comes from within. It's inseparable. It's not external. It's not acquired. That's divine. So God, when God knows everything that's happening in this world, and God is by divine providence, God is aware of everything that's happening in this world, from the tiniest amoeba to the smallest event and the smallest flutter of, of, of a butterfly to what's happening inside our hearts, the, the flutter of our hearts, or what's happening in our minds, or what's troubling us, aching us, bothering us, our joys, our ecstasies, our struggles, anything, everything. God is totally aware of everything that's going on, but it doesn't add anything to God, because this is a knowledge that's inseparable from God. The knowledge is divine, because we all come from God. Everything we have is from God, so everything is inseparable from God. So God knows himself. So it's an inseparable type of knowledge, not an external acquired type of knowledge. So therefore, God doesn't change, is not affected by creation. His knowledge doesn't change, is not affected by creation. And he remains one. My mom that he says this is something that's very difficult for us to relate to, because the knowledge that we could relate to is conscious knowledge. The highest level of knowledge, learning science and math and physics and pure, pure science. But that's all external knowledge, which is made up of three components. The knower, the person who knows, the ability to know, and the knowing. Two separate things. You can have one without the other.
People go through their lives and they don't acquire this knowledge. It's not an inseparable knowledge. It's inseparable from you. A knowledge that comes from within, that comes from your very core, your very essence. It's an external knowledge. It's like, it's like by machine, mechanically, technically, bringing three things together. And tying it very well, because once you know something, once you understand 2 plus 2 is 4, you'll never ever understand 2 plus 2 is 5. Because it becomes, once you know it, you know it. It becomes part of you. It becomes part of your blood. But nevertheless, it's external knowledge. It's three components that were forced together, so to speak. While a knowledge, like a person knows himself, is not an external knowledge. It's an internal knowledge. It's inseparable from you. You know yourself because you are yourself. You're totally aware of yourself. Constantly aware of yourself. Subconsciously. It's a subconscious level of knowledge. A deeper level of knowledge. A knowledge that comes from within you. It's inseparable with you. It's not external. It's not added on. But that's something that's very hard for us to relate to. Because that's not, that's not our frame of reference. That's not our world. Our whole frame of reference is the conscious world. Our whole universe is the conscious world. The whole subconscious world is so beyond us. So it's very hard for us to relate to. But what Maimonides says, but we have to understand that this is, God's knowledge is a different level of knowledge. It's not an external now. And therefore, it doesn't change God and doesn't affect us. Okay, continue. The Holy One, blessed be He, however, is a perfect unity without any composition or element of plurality at all, inasmuch as it is impossible to speak of any aspect of Him as existed previously. Hence, since His unity is perfect and uncompounded, one cannot say that His knowledge is something apart from Him, for that would imply, heaven forbid, a composite that His knowledge is superadded to his essence, affecting a change within him. Rather, one must conclude that his essence and being and knowledge are all absolutely one, without any composition. Therefore, just as, as it is impossible for any creature in the, in the world to comprehend the essence of the Creator and his being, so it is impossible to comprehend the essence of his knowledge, which is one with Hashem himself. It is possible only to believe with a faith that transcends into transcends intellect and comprehension that the Holy One, blessed be He, is one and unique. Inasmuch as faith transcends intellect, it is able to apprehend truths that lie beyond the province of mortal intellect. He and His knowledge are all absolutely one, and knowing Himself, He perceives and knows all the higher and lower beings, i.e. the beings in the higher and lower worlds, including even a small one in the sea and a minute mosquito that may be found in the center of the sea. So he uses the most insignificant of all creatures, both qualitatively and quantitatively. Quantitatively wise, a small worm in the sea is like the smallest visible creature. It's visible to the naked eye. The tiniest creature is the, small, the smallest worm in the sea. So quantitative-wise, it's the smallest. Qualitatively-wise, the mosquito. The mosquito is, in the hierarchy of creation, is the lowest. It's all the way in the bottom of the totem pole. Because a mosquito is so miserable. Why? Because everything in this world takes in, takes, but also gives back something. At least fertilizer. <laughs> mosquito has no, has no refuse. A mosquito doesn't give anything back. It's totally selfish. All it does is it takes. It takes. It sucks your blood. It takes. That's all it does. It doesn't give back anything. It doesn't, it doesn't even give back excrement. It doesn't even give back fertilizer. That's how selfish. In the hierarchy of the world, that's, that's the most miserable creature on earth. When a person is compared to a mosquito, that you're so miserable, you're such a, give, a taker, you don't give anything back. All you, do, all you hear in this world is to take. 
You're not here to help anyone. You're not here to give back something. You know, God gave you. Why did he give something back to life? Give something back to Hashem, to the world. Help another person. No. Everything is for me. So the, the most, this is the most miserable, the hierarchy of things, the most miserable human being in the face of the earth. A person is so selfish, so self-centered, so self-absorbed. Nothing else exists but me. And everything, like a black hole, everything is just to take, to take. Everything disappears within me. It doesn't give out any light. It doesn't do anything. This is the worst, the lowest level. But Hashem is aware of everything, from the mosquito to the tiny worm. Hashem is aware and feels everything that exists. Nothing happens. The smallest flutter, the smallest movement, nothing happens without Hashem's total awareness and knowledge and without Hashem's divine providence. But all of that is part of His knowledge, which is inseparable from Him. And just like God knows Himself, and He knows everything, everything that's going on, but it doesn't add anything to Him. It's not separate from Him. It's not He knows something external to Him, something apart from Him. He knows Himself, and by knowing Himself, He knows everything that's going on, because everything is inseparable from, from God. There's nothing it's concealed. Not, it's not a multiplicity and composition at all, since it is merely a knowledge of himself and his being, and his knowledge are all one. Thus, by knowing himself, he knows all created beings that derive their existence from him, and that are utterly nullified to him and unified with him. And as much as this form of knowledge is very difficult to envisage, uh, the prophet Isaiah therefore said, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Okay, now, the Alter Rebbe, the Tanya, is not a commentary on Isaiah. Why does Alter Rebbe bring here an explanation of Isaiah? That this is what Isaiah means. That's why the prophet says that just like the heaven is above us, is distant from us, we cannot grasp the heaven, we can't reach the heavens, so too are my ways and my thoughts um, above you. You can never really grasp my thoughts. I mean, we're not here to explain, to give commentary on the meaning of verses in Isaiah. How does this fit in with everything he's been explaining till now? The Rebbe explains that Alter Rebbe is, is uh, coming to answer a question that, ari- that arises because he just finished explaining that the lower level of unity is the belief that even the name Adnai, even the name with which God creates the world, with which God creates time and space, the world that we occupy, that we operate in, our world, our egotistical world, our world that's separate from God, so to speak. And yet, even within that space, that name Adnai, that the, the, the royal attribute of, of, um, of the divine attribute of royalty is unified within God. And therefore, just like God is unchanged and unaffected by creation, so even even in the divine attribute of royalty, since the divine attribute of royalty is inseparable from God and is one with God, so God's essence permeates even our time and space. And therefore, just like the world, God remains unaffected by the world and untouched and unchanged by the world, so too, even within our time and our space, our time and space is filled with God's essence, and therefore, He remains totally unaffected by creation. 
So nothing changed. God was alone before he created the world. And even within the framework of reality that we operate in and live in, it's also filled with his essence. And therefore, he remains totally one. And to explain that further, he said that, and that also God's knowledge. Although God's knowledge is only in relation to the world. You say God knows us. So obviously, you know, God himself transcends knowledge. The whole idea of knowledge is something which is something that's defined, is something in relationship to us. When you say that God knows us, um, so you would think that God's knowledge is affected by creation. There's a difference before he knows or after he knows. God's essence remains unaffected, but at least his knowledge is affected by us. He says, no, just like God's essence remains unaffected by us, and he remains alone, so too, even his knowledge, because him and his knowledge are one and inseparable, so just like God's essence remains unaffected by creation, even his knowledge and his awareness of everything that's going on remains totally unaffected by creation. And he remains alone, and his knowledge remains, remains alone. This is what he calls the lower level of unity which applies to every single Jew. The higher level of unity, in which all the worlds are completely nullified in existence, and they don't even begin to exist, that where time and space are totally transcended, or time and space are totally unified within God, that's a level that's only for great Jews, for special Jews, righteous Jews, saints, prophets, rebbies. This is a different level of reality. This is the level of reality of the Holy of Holies where time and space were simultaneously be uh, transcended time and space. It took up space, the art took up space, it didn't take up space, at the, simultaneously at the same time. This is a world of paradoxes, a world which defies the imagination, a world where time and space are merely the expression of God's truly undefined self. A God is so unlimited, he even transcends being infinite. He's, he can't even call him infinite, because even infinite is a definition. God is not infinite, God is not finite, God is beyond any definition, therefore he can contain opposites. So time and space are there to express God's essence. I mean, that's a level for the greatest Jews, the holiest Jews, when they saw this world, all they saw... They didn't see time, space, limitation. They, they didn't see limitation. All they saw is on the contrary. They saw the ultimate expression of the infinite. It's, the God is so infinite, he's even beyond being infinite. He transcends the, the, the transcendent. He transcends the spiritual. God is so undefined that he can even express himself in a limited, in a temple. He can even express himself in a geographic location. He can even express himself in a mitzvah, with a physical object. God is so unlimited that he can even create a physical world. He can even express himself through knowledge. He can even express himself through wisdom. Not that God is wisdom or God is knowledge. God is infinite. But God is so infinite, he's not even limited to being beyond wisdom. He can even take that whole infinite and compress it and concentrate it in a finite, through wisdom, through love, through knowledge and compassion. So it's a whole different perspective of reality. It's a different reality than our reality. The Holy of Holies, the reality of the Holy of Holies, where there was time and space, was a different... It was a different reality. It wasn't our time and space that we functioned in and operated. The time and space meant something else entirely. It was a pure divine expression. So that's only relevant to great Jews, holy Jews, special Jews. But the lower level of unity, where with the divine attribute of royalty, God creates a separation, and he creates sentient beings, conscience beings, even angels. Angels are separate from God. They yearn to God. They want to connect with God, but they're separate from God. 
They're not God. They're not inseparable from God. They're created beings. How much more so us? We, physical, egotistical, materialistic human beings, that we are separate from God. And we have to bend our will and we have to break ourselves and we have to discipline ourselves and we have to overcome our appetites and we have to, we have to diet, go on a spiritual diet and a Jewish diet and a, spirit, and a divine diet and restrain ourselves and live a wholesome life and it's very, very difficult. But that's our way of subjecting ourselves to God and connecting with God and that's what God desired. But nevertheless, even, even, even within our world, we have to remember that God remains unchanged, that all there is is God. And nothing else exists. Why? Because even this divine attribute of royalty and all of the ten spherot, all of the divine attributes of knowledge, of mercy, of compassion, of kindness, wisdom, they're inseparable from God. So just like God's essence remains unaffected, so too even God's knowledge remains unaffected. And even, his, even the divine attribute of royalty the, that he creates time and space with, even there, that space is filled with God's essence and therefore God remains unaffected and, and God's essence fills our time and our space and our reality and therefore all there is is God. There's no space empty of God. There's no space for anything else. And what's the difference between that and pantheism? A huge difference because we're not saying pantheism is that we are God. If you bow down to the table, that's, panthe- that's idolatry. We're not saying we're God. We're saying we're completely nullified before God. We're saying everything we're, is nothing but God. No, we're saying we're completely nullified before God. We're saying we're completely unified with God, nullified before God, but we're not God. Can you say we're part of his essence? No, 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 no. But creation by definition means that we're not his essence. That's, that's creation by definition means that we're not his essence. God creates something apart from him. God creates something outside of him. God creates something that didn't exist before. That's the definition of creation. Something from nothing means that he creates something that didn't exist before. Uh, you know, this cup of water didn't exist before. There was no water before. And, and God created water. Um, so by definition but it's completely nullified before God because since the cup of water has no existence has no reality the only reality is because God forces it to exist this very moment so what is the cup of water really? all it is is really the divine ability to create all it is is God's ability to create it's the miracle of creation that's all it is is the miracle of creation if, if, we, are, if we, do, we weren't wearing blinders we wouldn't notice the cup of water we wouldn't even pay attention we would pay attention and notice and focus on the miracle of creation at this very moment the infinite is transforming itself into a cup of water that, that's, what, that's what's really going on that's the real story but we have blinders so we don't see the real story what do we see? we see a cup of water that's all we see you don't see the atoms you don't see the energy you don't see the process you don't see anything so it's not what it appears to be. But, but God forbid, if you, someone bows down to this cup of water, it's idolatry. If you say this cup of water is God, it's a, it's, a very, it's a very dangerous, you have to be very careful. We're not saying that the world is God. The world is not God. God created something from nothing. Something from nothing. Something that didn't exist in its source. But because it's totally dependent on its source, and everything it has is from a source. It has nothing other than source. And in this very moment, if God would cease to create it, it would totally be obliterated. God could turn everything off in a second and, and he wipes everything out as if it never existed. It never existed because it has no meaning. Its all meaning is because God gives it meaning and God wills it and God imagines it and God speaks it into existence and wants it to exist. That's the only reason it has any meaning or, or exists. So since it's totally dependent on God, it's totally nullified before God. And totally unified with God, but it's not God. 
God forbid. You make a bracha on a rainbow. To me, a rainbow is also an object in this some respects, and we make blessings on things like that when they happen on occasions. That would that is that in some respects potentially a form of idolatry. Well, when you're doing a mitzvah, mm-hmm. you're doing the will of God. So then that becomes an expression of God. God and His will are one. So when you're doing a mitzvah with an esrog and you're kissing the esrog, I'm not worshiping the esrog. The esrog is the holy. It's a holy object while I'm doing the mitzvah because it's the, the will of God. So since the will of God that I should take this esrog, so therefore it becomes an extension of God. So that's why it's holy. So the mitzvot are different. But if I just take an object on its own and I just venerate it and I worship it, that's idolatry. Worship it how? I mean, where, where do you like like the idol worshippers worship to worship, or or the whole idea of pantheism. You know, everything is God. That's but a, everything's an extension of God. But but there's is he, but there's everything is created by God. There's a big difference. Everything is Everything is created. So it's nullified before God, but it's not God. He's creating something from nothing. Something from nothing. Ongoing creation. So God is creating it. Every, why does he have to create it every moment? Because the moment he stops creating it, it reverts back to its natural state, which is absolutely nothing. This whole universe would disappear as if it never existed. Wiped from the record as if it never existed. Not, not that it existed for 5,765 years, and this moment it stopped existing. But we have a record that exists. It never existed. It only exists only because God wants it to exist. It's like your imagination. You imagine something. So you create a whole universe in your imagination. But the difference is we, we imagine and nothing is created. God imagines and something is created. God speaks and wills and something happens. He has the ability, that's the divine ability, the miraculous ability to create. But he must create each and every moment because inherently, even while he's creating, inherently we don't exist. We're nothing. All we are is because God wills us. So, but it's, God wants, wills something, something from nothing. Not that this is God. When you, make, when you drink a cup of water and you say, Baruch Atah Hashem, that's how you pay homage. When you don't benefit from anything of this world without making a bracha, that's how you pay homage. That's how you recognize when you say Baruch Hashem throughout your day, thank God, Baruch Hashem, you're recognizing, you're paying homage, you're recognizing that everything is constantly being created by God and really God permeates everything. There's no space empty of God, there's no aspect of my life empty of God. There's no, it's, it's, that's the way you pay homage, through Torah and mitzvah. Torah and mitzvah permeate every aspect of your life. Eating, the act of eating. The act of eating is not a compartmentalized event. It happens constantly. When Torah and mitzvah, many people have a problem with kosher. Why should God care what I eat? What does God have to do with eating? I understand when I'm contemplating and meditating and being spiritual on a Shabbos. That, okay, that has to do with God. On a Wednesday afternoon, I'm grabbing a bite for lunch. What does God have to do with anything? But that's the whole idea. We can't compartmentalize. God has to do with everything. Because God is creating this cup of water this very moment. On a Wednesday afternoon, He's creating you. The miracle of creation is ongoing. And you have to acknowledge that and recognize that and thank Hashem. And, and feel like a guest in His house and, 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 and thank Him. I, without permission, I can't take anything in this world without permission. You don't just grab and take. I earned it. It's mine. No, no. I have to ask Hashem permission. You make a bracha thanking you and asking you permission to, to may, may I eat from this? May I eat from what, what you're giving me this moment? So it's a whole different perspective which you have to constantly reinforce and constantly become aware of and remind yourself by making, not just saying the bracha, but by thinking what the meaning of the bracha is all about. That's how you become aware. That's how you bring godliness into this world. 
That's how you reveal godliness in the world. That's the Jew's mission, to reveal the truth, the godly, divine truth, throughout our lives as we go about our daily lives. Each one of us is a divine ambassador, and we have to bring the word and spread and, connect and reveal that truth in everything that we do and everything that we come in contact with. That is the divine mission. That's why you put a mezuzah on your house. Why are you putting a mezuzah on your house? Because you're connecting your house and everything that you do in your house with Hashem. Every aspect of your life becomes connected from eating, from your home, from doing business, by giving tzedakah. When you give a tenth of your earnings to tzedakah, so all of your business interactions and everything that, that brought you that money, everything that it took to get you them, all those conferences, all those boring conferences, and all, all the trips, and everything you had to do to get there, all become connected with Hashem because you've done a mitzvah with the money that resulted from all of these efforts and activities. So too, every aspect of your life becomes connected, connected with Hashem. And that's, our, and that's, our, that's a, Jew's, a Jew's mission. But that's revealing that truth, that miracle of creation. Hashem is creating the world constantly, creating something from nothing. There's a big difference between saying that that is God. The cup of water is God, or the world, or an angel is God. You know, to worship an angel. But an angel is a heavenly being, yes. But an angel is a created being, a creature. So why does God tolerate so much of the opposite when there's no acknowledgement? The majority of the world, even, I mean, not right to say, but many Jews don't, don't make this acknowledgement that you're, you're talking about. And he tolerates it. It's, very, it's actually very painful for God. That's the meaning of the Shekhinah is in Golis. The Shekhinah is in exile. God is in anguish. Exile is no fun. Not only for us. God is in exile. The fact that there's no temple... God's name is not allowed to be mentioned as it's written. God's name is chopped off. It's, it's split off. The first two letters and the last two letters, his throne is split. He's in exile. He's not in his own home. He's not at home. God is not at home. He's destroyed. His temple, his home is destroyed. God is homeless. God is in anguish. He's in pain. Rabbis used to travel in exile just to feel that pain. They would go into exile, they would say goodbye to their families for two, three years. And they would wander from city to city to experience, to empathize with God, to get a taste of what it means, exile. This is, God is in exile. It's very painful. It's more painful to Hashem than it is for us. Because as long as people don't acknowledge God, as long as we don't acknowledge Hashem and don't make Him part of our life, as the Kotzker Rebbe once asked his Hasidim, he says, where is God? So they said, oh, that's an easy question. God is everywhere. He says, no. You're wrong. God is wherever you allow him to enter. If you allow him to enter into your heart, into your mind, and like you make a conscious decision to allow him to enter into your conscious, make it a part of your life, then God is present. Otherwise, you've kicked God out. God's home is destroyed. He's not at home in your life. He's not part of your life. Consciously. So it's, that's, it's a, that's, that's an anguish. And Mashiach will come, um, then God will feel at home. Because when every human being will recognize, become a righteous Gentile, and every single Jew will get in touch with their pintle yid and connect and be proud of being Jewish, then we will be at home, God will be at home, the universe will be at home, Hashem's name will be revealed and manifest, the temple will be rebuilt. That's just a symptom. The ingathering of the exiles, the temple rebuilt, is just a symptom, a manifestation of the world being restored back to health. 
to wholesomeness. Right now, the world is very unhealthy. Our whole insides are cut out of us, are torn out of us, and Hashem is in pain, in terrific pain and anguish. Every time we sin, the Talmud says, every time we sin, Hashem cries. It hurts Him. He's in pain. If He didn't want it this way, He could create it differently. Ah. But he, did, he did, but, but he did want it this way. Because he didn't want to, he wants us to choose. He, he, put, he invested himself in us. He risked everything. He put everything on the line. He says it's in your hands. Well, eventually, we don't have a choice what the outcome will be. <laughs> the outcome will be that all roads lead to Jerusalem. That's, that's a given. But we have a choice how to get there. It could be in a painful way, or it could be in a joyous way. We're all going to learn the lessons that we need to learn in life. The question is, are you going to bang your head against the wall first and learn the hard way? Right. It's, it's creation. Yes. But the whole purpose of creation is, the whole purpose of creation is that he wants us to willingly, to be our choice. Because if he has to force himself on us, if he has to impose himself upon us, there's a word for that. It's called a dictator. God wanted to be king. He didn't want to be a dictator. He doesn't want to have these elections like where you have 99.9% voted. Everyone unanimously voted for him because or else you were shot. If we lived in a world where the moment you, you missed shul, 7 o'clock, and you didn't come to the minion in the morning, you, would, wouldn't, you wouldn't step out of bed. Or, you know, if you did a sin, you would blow up. I mean, you know, that, that, God would have a 100% record. He would be a dictator. He doesn't want to be a dictator. He wants to be a king. Hashem has such confidence that he took away the Jewish Supreme Court. We, there's no one around today that forces us to be Jewish. There's no one around today that imposes it upon us. Hashem says it's a free marketplace. Judaism today has to compete with every ism under the sun, with communism, with socialism, every nonsense under, under the sun. Hashem says, you know, Hashem wanted us to buy into it. He wants us to willingly spend our money, and we should willingly buy it. Not He forces us to take it. It's a free world, a free market, and you will choose. Why? Because it's the truth. You know, most Hasidim don't let the children watch television. They don't want their children reading newspapers while they're in yeshiva. Um, they don't want their children going to mainstream, you know, let's say, secular universities to learn other things. It's not encouraged. It's, in some respects, frowned upon. I was in Lower East Side the other day, and I saw a sign on the thing that said, get the internet out of your home. You know, that's your choice. That's a choice. You can make a choice. Not the government forcing you not to, but you can make a choice that I don't want to have a television in my house. Because the culture... Because it's like when you, when in your home, you're very c careful about who you invite as a guest to your dinner table. You're not going to bring a bum, a lowlife, who has a, a filthy mouth. You don't want him sitting around your table. You don't, he's, not, he's not worthy of being at your table guest. You're very careful. You lock the door at night. You don't just let anyone into your house. You screen who we answer the door to. They're people who I like. I like their company. When you have a television, you're practically inviting them into your living room, into your house. I don't want my kids to hang around with this low, low life, this bum, with this thug. Because it's the same thing. I might as well just bring them into the living room and invite them. For, invite them. 
So it's a choice that you're making. No one is forcing you. This is not, no one is forcing you that you can't. A person can make a choice and say that, yes, I don't, I don't buy into the culture, the politically correct culture everyone's doing. I choose not to. I choose to spend my time, instead of vegetating, the average American watches six hours a day television, instead of sitting in front of the TV and vegetating, I choose to spend the time to study or to do something constructive. But that's a choice. No one is forcing me to make that choice. It's a choice that you make. Hashem has confidence. Today, today the truth is, let's be honest, with the internet, there's no, there's no isolation. There's no way to hide. Everything is right at your fingertips. You can't. You can't put ghetto walls up. It doesn't work. Today, with a little device, in a few years, a little device will have the whole world at your fingertips. There's no hiding. It will reach a point where a person has to make a choice. I could do everything, but I don't want to do it. I choose to do the right thing. Not because I have no choices. A thief that doesn't have a choice, doesn't have the option to steal, thinks he's honest. I do have a choice, but I make a choice. I make a choice that I don't want to live that type of life. I want to live a good life. And that, that's, the, that's the world that we live in today. That we have to educate our children. And this is the Chabad approach. The Chabad approach is, yes, we don't either have all of that. But the Chabad approach is that you educate your children. You give them such, so much, such a deep, profound appreciation and understanding of Yiddishkeit, an inner understanding of Yiddishkeit, that they're not afraid to go out and compete with everything that's out there and reach out to Jews who are exposed to all of the other isms and to sell very effectively to get the, another Jew to buy into Judaism because the message is again we're not trying to get everyone to look like us the point of Chabad is not to make everyone look into a chassid to look exactly like us the point is to get you to buy on your own you should become like Abraham and Sarah discover Yiddishkeit discover that it's your own it should be your thing Discover the depth and the richness and, and the, the beauty of Yiddishkeit. So that's, that's what Hashem wants. Hashem wants, and we live in that world whether you like it or not. It's a reality. We live in a free world today. You can do whatever you want. It's your choice. As much as you try, even children, ultimately children have to make a choice. As much as parents shelter their children, as much as you try to shelter them, don't delude yourself. In 2005, a child will have all the choices in the world he wants. And you just have to give them so much strength, so much inner warmth, so much depth, so much chasidah, so much tanya, so much clarity, so much uh, understanding, that the child, because ultimately, every child has to make, there comes a point where every child has to make their choice. I'm not doing it because my parents want me to do it. I'm not doing it because my community wants me to do it. I'm not conforming. Ultimately, every child is a rebel. Every child has to make an independent choice. I am doing this because I want to do this. And when you do something because you want to do it, you do it with a fire in your heart. You do it with flame. You do it with passion. It's alive. It's real. I'm not doing it externally. It's not superficial. It's not technical. It's not mechanical. It's real. That's real education. That always was real education, but especially today. And that's the only answer. There is no other answer. The only way to fight darkness is through light. You have to give your child so much light. You can't fight darkness with darkness. It doesn't work. You have to give your child so much light that your child will have the strength and the confidence. And look, the Rebbe's Hasidim were not afraid to go out into the world and to teach and to communicate and to transform 3,600 communities around the world. Not only weren't they affected, 
Everything that's out there, sometimes starting out being the only f observant Jew in the whole city, in the whole state. But they created a revolution. And today you have thousands of Jews there who go to the mikveh and, and put on tefillin and keep Shabbos, because, keep kosher, because it, it's an inner strength. That's, that's the Jewish way. There is no other way. That's the difference in Judaism and, 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 and fundamental. The choice that was made in the 1840s when the Russians were fighting the French was that the concern was that there was too much ism. It wasn't television, it wasn't radio, it wasn't even newspapers. Most Jews couldn't get into the universities. They made a choice that, to my opinion, was to the detriment of Jewish physical, maybe to the, to the success of Jewish spirit. Because Jews in those rush when the Russians ended up winning after the war, it's not like the Jews were treated like royalty. Pogroms and all the rest of it were yes. 10, 20 years down the road. I mean, if they had gone with the French, more individuals might have survived. I don't know how many Jews I don't know if you know what Bruce is referring to. There was a, an argument amongst the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, and amongst other great Hasidic Rebbe's from Poland, the Chais of Lublin, the Seer of Lublin, and others, who should win the war, Napoleon or the Tsar? There were many Rebbe's who rooted for Napoleon because they wanted to lift Jewish oppression. The Alter Rebbe chose the Tsar. And he supported the Tsar and all his Hasidim. And it was a battle, a royal ba a battle royale in heaven. Because here, here you had these masters, these powerful, powerful Hasidic masters, and each one pulling for two opposite sides. So the decision in heaven, the heavenly court, the decision was on Rosh Hashanah, when everything is decided. In the year 1812, the decision was that whoever is going to blow shofar first going to win the argument. So the Chayza, the seer of Lublin, woke up early, and he davened very quickly. And he blew the show. The Alter Rebbe woke up, and he said, it doesn't say anywhere in Jewish law. It says, yeah, the way we do the shofar is after shachars. But you can really blow shofar before davening. So before he even davened, he blew shofar. And he won the argument. And it was in the phone. Now, so the Rebbe explained, because the Jews then, this was just at the infancy of Hasidism. The Jews then didn't have the spiritual... The Alter Rebbe assessed that the Jews then did not yet have the spiritual ammunition they needed to fight Napoleon. They would spiritually succumb to Napoleon. Napoleon was very seductive. Absolutely. Napoleon was a horrible man. He, was very, he wouldn't have killed Jews, he would have killed their soul. And the Jews did not have what it takes to resist that seduction. It was just at the infancy of Hasidism, they still didn't have enough inner strength. It was only our generation. The Rebbe spent many years in, in Paris. It was our generation that today you see a revolution in France. Almost every Jew in France is connected with the Yiddish guy. This is growing. I mean, it's unbelievable what's going on. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Altruvas in the heart of, of Napoleon land, which was a miracle. Let's not take it for granted. But this is a phenomenon that happened today because we are the seventh generation from the Alter Rebbe. And as a result of absorbing all the teachings of Hasidism, today we do have enough ammunition and we have enough strength to go out and tackle the world and transform the world from within. So the Alter Rebbe assessed the situation, his time and his Hasidim and his, the Jewish people at his day and age. And he says, with all due respect, they don't have the ammunition. Many people did die as a result. Yes. But otherwise, the Jewish people would have died. It was a judgment call that he made. Because even today, even when we stayed in Russia, look what happened. The moment, think about it, in Alter Rebbe's times, 
99, 95% of Jews were observant. Within 100 years, 90% of Jews ran, couldn't run away fast enough. What happened? The ghetto walls came down, everyone came to America, and it was all over. So the Rebbe's assessment was pretty accurate. Absolutely, but the only reason I bring it up is because you made the point that Judaism can win at the end of the day against anything. And I'm saying that Judaism, like many other religions, has made the choice over the years to go with systems that are more oppressive in some respects because it gives them a certain ghetto wall shelter around them that allows them to survive. Okay, that was, that was, that was then. That was a certain time and circumstances. And, but today, today, which is the, you know, the ultimate goal, is today. Everything that happened in history led us to, the, to this moment. We are the last generation. Everything was a preparation for our generation because we have to close the deal. So everything was a preparation. This is the real thing because the ultimate goal in Judaism is that it's a marketplace. And Hashem is so confident that we will choose the right thing. And look, look at the renaissance of Jewish life. Hundreds of thousands of Balshuvas. This is the ultimate proof that this is, this is the ultimate truth and genuineness of Judaism. It's so genuine that Hashem is not afraid. Even the ult- after communism, Hitlerism, assimilationism, each and every one of these alone could have been a knockout blow to Judaism. I mean, communism itself just wiped out Jewish life overnight. Hitler just, just destroyed everything. American assimilationism. I mean, each one of these alone would be enough to make a knockout blow to Judaism. And look what happened as a result of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe and the Rebbe. Judaism today is thriving like never before. So this is the ultimate proof of God's truth, that Torah is so real, Torah is so true, that it will always, truth will always emerge. Hashem is not afraid. In as much as this form knowledge is very difficult to envisage, Prophet we read that Prophet Isaiah therefore said, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So that's why the Alter Rebbe is coming to answer that it's very difficult to, to imagine. It's not impossible, it's difficult. Because we can't relate to this type of knowledge. We are used to the conscious level of knowledge, the external level of knowledge, the acquired knowledge. It's really almost superficial to me. It's external to me. It's not inseparable from me. It's very difficult for us to relate to, to that deeper level of knowledge, a subconscious level of knowledge, which is inseparable from us. But it's not impossible. It's difficult. That's why Maimonides uses this to explain. He asks a question, he says, and he answers, well, God's knowledge is different than our knowledge. God, the knower, and the knowing, and what's known is all one. So, but it's, impo- it's very difficult for us to understand. So the Ravid is, is the one who always argues with Maimonides. He says, I don't get it. You start a question, you ask a logical question, and what do you answer? Well, we can't understand it. So why are you bringing up the question in the first place? It's just a question of faith. So just say it's a question, it's a matter of faith that that God knows and, and we can't understand it. End of sentence. Why does he go into the whole explanation that God's knowledge is not like our knowledge and it's very difficult to really understand? Because Maimonides is not saying it's impossible to understand. He's saying it's very difficult to understand. It. But we could, if we try very hard, we could relate to it in some way. Give us some glimpse, some understanding that we could relate that God's knowledge is different than ours. And therefore, since God's knowledge is different than ours, therefore we can have some, some glimpse, some hint some understanding, and therefore we know that God understands things differently and knows things differently and it doesn't affect Him. His knowledge doesn't affect Him like it affects us. Continue. It is likewise written, 
You're right. Can you, by intellectual searching, find a shape? Have you, have you eyes of flesh, and do you see as man sees? The man sees and knows everything with the knowledge that is external to himself. And then something is added to him by his knowledge. Whereas the Holy One, blessed knows all by knowing himself. These are the paraphrased words of my mind. Okay. See, he wrote The sages of the Kabbalah have agreed with him, as is explained in Pardis of Rabbi Moshe Kodero of Blessed Memory. There are a number of Torah sages who strongly disagree with Humani's view. They claim that no descriptive term may be applied to God, not even that of knowledge, and not even of a form of knowledge so rarefied that it is completely beyond the realm of human experience. To say that God is the knower, and the knowledge, and so on, so the argument runs, is to give infinite God a description which would serve to limit him. According to the Kabbalah, however, Maimonides is indeed correct. However, as stated in the Alter Rebbe's note, in part 1, chapter 2, and later on in his note in chapter 9, this is only after the angel's light has undergone numerous tzutsumis, until it is able to guard itself in the vessels of the Sirot of Chachma, Bina, and Das of the world of Atsilut. At this stage in Atsilut, we can truly say that God is the knower and known, etc., inasmuch as the attributes of Atsilut are completely unified with the angel's light. We'll discuss this next week. This is a very... Uh, once you start, this is... Uh, this is a very classical, right, this is a very... Very fundamental discussion amongst the medieval rabbis, the Maimonides, and the Maral, and a very sharp discussion. And, and then he, he reconciles the two opinions. This, is, uh, this deserves still, a separate discussion. Lessons in Tanya, taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website www.lessonsintanya.com